I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. This meeting is being recorded. Good morning, everybody. This class is being sponsored by Carol Goldberg on the yurt site of her father, Mordechai ben Nachum. His neshama should have an aliyah. And, you know, it should be a class that's a refuah for all of those who need a refuah, rifkigitl bas yehudis. You can have in mind your own people, aliyah for the neshama of Suzanne's late husband, don't know his Hebrew name, but God willing, his neshama should have an aliyah. Yisrael ben Mordechai Halevi. Thank you. Yisrael ben Mordechai Halevi. And Marlene's family also lost a dear friend. Should be an aliyah for his neshama. Carol, I just mentioned your sponsorship. Thank you. Sorry, your father. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, I better get one. Um, and those of us suffering from long COVID (laughs) yeah from long COVID and we talked about that in Wednesday's class how we're all sort of living in Mitzrayim we are experiencing that sense of constriction and God willing we'll get out of this Mitzrayim and we'll get to the ultimate Geula and uh, we'll all be there to enjoy that together all of the pain and suffering disappear and uh, we'll be reunited with our loved ones and all of that that's yet to come. Okay, I'm really excited to teach the Shema. I taught this many years ago uh, at Shari Shemayim and uh, I'm excited to teach it again because for anybody who dovens every morning or, you know, once in a while, obviously we know that the Shema prayer is one of the essential prayers um, of the Jewish people. It's the Declaration of Independence that we, um, that we say many times every morning and every night, right? We wake up with it. We go to sleep with it. And it, um, like the Shemona Esrei, it is the most central prayer, so Shemona Esme, we could say, is us talking to God. And the Shema is our Pledge of Allegiance, our Declaration of Faith. I just remember as a kid, I think it was 1971, and my parents took us on a trip to Israel. It was actually the first inaugural nonstop flight from Montreal to Israel in 1971. And it was incredible because, you know, they had all kinds of... Um, different activities on the plane. There were quizzes. My father won me a radio with this Bible quiz that he won. (laughs) And they gave out pillows that were actually made out of feather, if you can imagine, the little pillows that airplanes used to give you to put your head on that you don't get anymore, right? It was actually, my mother had it till the end of her life, a feather pillow from El Al. We all got a certificate, which we have, that was like, you know, written in calligraphy and (laughs) beautiful colors saying that we were on this inaugural flight. Anyway, I was 11 years old, and I remember being in the hotel room in Tel Aviv, and, you know, we had little cots for the kids, 
and I couldn't sleep because I was imagining that Arabs were climbing up the side of the hotel room, uh, you know, the side of the wall, and that they were going to come into the room and who knows what, right? They were still doing bad things back then in 1971. Nothing's changed, right? Um, anyway, I was like crying and, and scared. And I remember my father, it's one of my strong memories of my father as a kid coming into my room and squeezing himself onto my little cot and saying to me, let's say the Shema together. We say the Shema, nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be okay. So that sense of, you know, his assurance and God's love and protection mm -hmm. that he instilled in that moment in me at that time is something that I never forgot. My father had a way of making God very real, um, you know, and, um, and, and this was one of the ways that he did it. So back to the idea of the Shema. The Shema is our mission statement. It's our rallying cry. It's our declaration, if you like, of dependence on Hashem. We say it when we go to sleep at night, when we wake up in the morning. It's the prayer that we say before we die. It's the prayer that many Jewish martyrs who entered the gas chambers screamed with their last breath. I heard once that a Nazi guard of the gas chamber said that the way that he knew that every Jew was dead is when he heard the last Shema Yisrael emanating from the chambers. If you can imagine. Um, cute story. My son once came home. We had just moved to America and we were unfamiliar with the fact that in American classrooms, kids put their hands on their heart and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of America and the Republic to which it stands. So he came home a little bit horrified and asked us, he said, I don't know what we said in school this morning, but I'm not sure it was Jewish. I don't think it was Jewish, but it was very serious and intense. So we explained to him, it's okay, you could say that, you know, but uh, is probably our uh, putting our hands on our heart and saying our declaration and Shema. So you know that it's a prayer that actually is said the night before a child's bris. It's called a Wachnacht, where people bring over young kids and they say it as protection for the baby who on the eighth day is going to go through a surgery. So they come around the crib and they recite the Shema Yisrael and other uh, prayers to protect the child with the upcoming surgery. Um, again, it's a protection before sleep, before we go to bed at night, because nighttime is the time when evil dominates. We say it in the Kedusha of Shimona Esrei, right? We say it on Yom Kippur at the very end of Ne'ila. As the, as the gates are closing, we cry out and affirm, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And we have a mitzvah of oblig being obligated to say it twice a day. Now I'm going to screen share because um, I want you to look at the Shema. For those of you who have um, a sitter,
it's a little bit different because the Siddur will be will begin with words Kel Melech Ne'eman. And I want to talk a little bit about that first. But first, I just want to read through the Shema with you and translate it into English. And then we're going to go back and um, start, start discussing what it means. So here we have the first line of the Shema as it appears in the Torah. Parshas Akev. It actually appears after the Ten Commandments. Uh, we read the Ten Commandments this week in, in uh, this week's Parsha Yisro. But the Ten Commandments is repeated again in the Parsha of the Eschanan in Devarim. As you can see on the top, this is from Devarim. And it's not a coincidence that right after we are, this, the Ten Commandments are repeated, the Aseris Adibros, the Shema Yisrael follows soon after that. So the words Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Ve'ahavta Eis, Hashem Elokecha, Bechol Levavcha, Uvechol Nafshecha, Uvechol Meodecha, Ve'hayu Adivarim Ha'ele, Asher Anochi Metzavcha, Ha'yom, Al Levavcha, Ve'shinantem Levanecha, Ve'dibarta Bam, Ve'shivtecha Ve'veitecha, Ve'lachtecha Ve'derech, Ve'shach Becha Ve'kumecha, Ksharton Le'ot Al Yadecha, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We usually say this translation says the Lord alone, which is an interesting translation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Take to heart these instructions with which I charge you this day. Impress them upon your children. Recite them when you stay at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we're going to begin with the um, first paragraph of the Shema. And for those of you who have a sitter in front of you, you'll see that the words, the three words, Kel Melech Ne'eman, begin the Shema. Now, just to know, you only say these three words when you are not davening with a minion. So in Shua, we don't say Kel Melech Ne'eman. I just want to come back to be able to see all your beautiful faces, okay? We don't say those three words, Kel Melech Ne'eman, unless we're davening alone, Okay. I'll tell you why in a minute. So what do these words mean? So Kael, Aleph Lamed, is the name of God, right? One of the names of God. God has many names. There's actually 72 different names of God in Judaism, right? And this, this name, Aleph Lamed, is a name of God that really talk, is talking about and expressing his power, and number one, what it's saying is that to be a Jew is to believe in God. You know, it always reminds me of the joke about uh, David who comes home from school and he says to his father, you know, Johnny said there's three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And David's father says, well, you go back to school and you tell Johnny there's only one God and we don't believe in him. <laughs> That's called Jewish cognitive dissonance. Okay. Anyway, the point is, is to be a Jew is to believe in God. 
This is a definition of being a Jew. The Rambam says you can't be a Jew without believing in God. So that's the word kale. But the next word, melech, king, is saying that this God has a relationship with his world. He's a king. He rules over the world. And we have an expression, ein melech, the low am. There's no such thing as a king without a people. A king has to rule over people in order to become a king. And the people have to proclaim him king in order for him to be king. There has to be a relationship. There has to be uh, a sense of having a ruler. And the last word, ne'eman, means that this king is faithful. And when we're talking about faithful, and this is a topic and a theme of the Shema, it means he's faithful to reward and punish. Okay? That's his job as a king. To reward and bring justice or punishment to his kingdom. Interestingly, the three words, Kale Melech Ne'eman, spell the acronym Amen, which we say after every bracha. Right? You don't say it after your own bracha. It's something that people say when you finish your bracha. I know everybody goes to Hebrew school and they learn to say, Baruch Amen, and they say Amen to their own bracha, right? This is usually a the first correction of a balchuva that, you know, they learn. No, it's for other people to say Amen, because Amen actually means I agree. One of the meanings of Amen is I agree, but of course, the word Amen is the same shorish, has the same root as the word Amunah belief, faithfulness. So on the one hand, we're saying Kel Melech Ne'eman, describing who God is, but embedded in that is the sense of, you know, uh, what all of the Torah boils down to, we're told, what it was totally boiled down to was an expression, Sadiq Naso Sadiq lives with his emuna that emuna is the bottom line of everything to have belief and i mentioned before maybe in my class on wednesday actually we weren't recording then rabbi Sachs's definition of emuna is not just belief but rather being faithful to a belief being faithful to the promise that hashem made even to us as Jews, even when it seems very far away, even when the real and the ideal seem to be millions of miles apart, it's holding on to the promise, to the reality. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to mute everybody. If you have any questions or you want to unmute, um, you can do that, do that so that people don't have to. Um... Okay, so this Kale Melech Naaman again is telling us that we begin everything, everything begins with Amuna. Now, why don't we say it when we're uh, in a minion? So the Shema prayer has 248 words in it. For those of you who are thinking right away, oh, what's that number 248 significant for? We have 248 positive mitzvot in the Torah. The mitzvahs that say, do this, do that, one of which is loving Hashem, to love Hashem. It's considered to be one of the six 
constant mitzvot, something that you could do all the time, something that you can do in your head, right? And you're getting a mitzvah every second that you're thinking wonderful thoughts about God, loving thoughts about God, grateful thoughts to God, okay? And what happens is if when you're, when you're praying alone, you need to put in those three words, kel melech ne'aman, to get to 248 words. Because what happens in Shul is at the end of the Shemona Esrei, the Chazan says the three words at the end of Shemona Esrei, Ani Hashem Elokechem Emet, right? Hashem Elokechem Emet. So those three words that the Chazan says in Shul make up the 248. So we don't have to say Kel Melech Ne'eman unless we're alone, where we're not going to hear out loud right? The three words that, that are put in in shul at the end. So that's just a little bit of a technical thing that's interesting to understand. So let's look at the first, um, I'm just going to put on the screen share again, just for a second. Let's look at the first sentence of the Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Now, normally, um, actually, so the first thing I want to say is the idea that the concept of God being one was a revolutionary idea. We know that um, Avraham Avinu is the one who brought this understanding of God, this monotheistic belief in God into a world that was ruled by idol worship and paganism and the belief in all kinds of powers warring with each other, et cetera, et cetera. And he brought back the idea of God's oneness, which of course everybody knew at the beginning of time, but it, you know, kept getting lost. And Avram Avinu was a revolutionary who brought back this idea. And we know just, you know, that Avram was called Avraham Ha'ivri because he was a Hebrew, meaning in, in Hebrew, that means, Ivri means La'avor, that he crossed over he crossed over to one side while the rest of the world stood on the other side against him in terms of their beliefs and understanding of, you know, the workings of the world and uh, their beliefs being completely off. Um, so, uh, of, so if we look at the first word in the Shema, we see that it is the word to hear, to listen. Shema, Okay. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. And um, just to talk a little bit about, actually, you know what, since I put this on, I just want to say, just for you to, to think of when I get there, in the Torah, the, the letter I in here, in the Shema, and the letter Dalit at the end of the Echad are written larger. Okay, they're written larger than the other letters, and there's a reason for that we're going to get to. But before we get there, um, actually, you know what, maybe I'll say this first. So, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Rashi tells us that at this point in history, the Lord our God is our God. But that one day in the future, Hashem is going to be the God of all mankind. And we know that day is when the Mashiach comes and the entire world accepts and understands that there's one God who created all of mankind. <clears throat> um, 
So, I actually was on a plane to Israel when this rabbi who was sitting next to me taught me this. And of course, it was one of the first things I learned. So it stuck with me forever. But he was explaining to me that the words, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, uh, were said the very first time when Yaakov Avinu was on his deathbed. He had called his 12 sons around him. And, you know, the Torah teaches us that he had had this moment of prophetic vision of when the Mashiach is coming. And he was about to tell his sons when the Mashiach is going to arrive. And all of a sudden, his divine inspiration, so to speak, left him. And he wasn't able to retrieve that information. And his first thought was, it must be that one of my sons here is not worthy of hearing this information. In other words, he's flawed. There's some kind of blemish where he's not going to be one of the ones that carries on the Jewish people. So when his prophetic vision left him, his son said to him all at once, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel. Yaakov's other name we know was Yisrael, right? When he fought with the angel, he was given this higher level name. So this, this, these, these words, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, can be read as Yaakov's sons trying to calm their father down and say, don't worry, dad. Shema Yisrael. Listen, dad, Yisrael. We know. We've got it. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is our God and God is one. And the Medrash teaches that when Yaakov heard this, he said back to them, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso Le'olam Va'ed. So those words that we say quietly after we say the Shema out loud are the words that Yaakov Yisrael answered back when he heard all 12 sons say, we got this, Dad. You can die knowing that you've passed this on successfully. Okay. So just another point, he was worried that his sons wouldn't be able to withstand the trials of Jewish history yet to come that he knew was going to be coming in front of them. And this affirmation, this declaration completely allowed him to know that he had done his job of, of, of teaching it and bringing it forward. <clears throat> so just to talk a little bit about the word Shema. And it's a beautiful insight from Rabbi who says that Judaism is a religion of listening. He has an article called The Spirituality of Listening. And he says that this word Shema appears no less than 92 times in the book of Devarim. And it means so many things. It's really fundamentally untranslatable, he says, into English, because it means so many things. It means to hear, to listen, to pay attention, to understand, to internalize, to respond, and to obey. 
time and time again in the last months of Moshe's life, he tells his people, Shema, listen, heed, pay attention, hear what I'm saying, hear what God is saying, listen to what he wants from us. If you would only listen, begins so many of the verses in Devarim. He says, Judaism is a religion of listening, and this is one of its most important contributions to civilization. He says, other religions and other philosophies, and the Western philosophy is the idea of seeing is believing, right? We all know this quote, relying on, so to speak, the sight. When you understand something, you say, I see. Jews say, I hear. Okay? And he says that Judaism offered a radical alternative to seeing. It's a faith in a God which we cannot see. A God who cannot be made into an idol. Just this week in the Parsha, right? Moshe reminds the people about their uh, inter, about their moment with God at Harsinai. He says, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no image. There was only a voice. God communicates in sounds, not sights. He speaks, he commands, he calls. That's why the supreme religious act is Shema. When God speaks, we listen. When he commands, we try to obey. Yeah, did somebody have a question? Yes, sorry, who are you quoting? I'm, I'm quoting Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs, though. okay, thank Ron you. yeah. Anyway, he talks more about this, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit more in another class, but it's very important idea that Judaism is a religion of listening, of hearing, of understanding, of asking questions, of being in relationship, right? So Shema means that we have to understand because it's only with understanding that we can have proper kavana when we pray kavana means intention direction when we understand the words that we're saying and what they mean we can engage our heart and our mind when we daven otherwise you know what's called lip service right god says i don't want your lip service I don't want your mumbling. Doesn't mean anything. If there's no mind and heart that's engaged. So that's the word Shema. We're going to leave it at that. Actually, uh, Rabbi Skoback was whatever we had them for Shabbos. And he was saying he once came across a book in Israel that he wished he had bought, but he didn't. It was about this thick, he said, like thousands of pages or a thousand pages, let's say, and the whole book was just on Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And he said ever since then, he tried to find it and he's never been able to find it. But that just tells you what is in that, those six words, right? You could write a whole magnum opus on it. But let's move on to the word Yisrael. <clears throat> so obviously Shema Yisrael, we're called the B'nai Yisrael, we're called the children of Israel. For those of you who haven't heard this before, the most beautiful idea that I love is that the word Yisrael is an acronym for all of the Avot and Imahot, right? The Yod is Yitzchak and Yaakov, the Shin is Sarah, the Resh is Rifkan and Rachel, the Aleph is Avraham, and the Lamed is Leah. 
So we're called the children of Israel, meaning we are the children that come from this foundation stone, this bedrock of people who walked against the wind, swam upstream, trying to teach the world once again about morality, God consciousness, and what the world needs in order to reach its completion. And these are our bubbies and our zadies. And this is where we get our spiritual D- DNA from. We're the, their children. And you see it embedded again in the world word Yisrael. So the next word, should I put the screensaver on again? Is that helpful? Or, I mean, the, the share screen or, or everybody can visualize. Or if you have a sitter, you can look at it. What? what yes, no. No. Okay. I want to see your faces and I can't see them when I, okay. So Hashem, the next name of Hashem is Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey. It's a name that we don't pronounce. Even when we're davening, we don't say it the way it looks. It's considered a, the Tetagrammaton, name of Hashem, the holiest name of Hashem. And It's always the name that connotes Hashem's mercy, his rachamim, yud Hey vav and Hey. As I've expressed before, it appears for the first time in the Chumash only after man is created. Before man's creation, the name Elohim, which is the God of judgment and justice, is able to rule the world. But once man is created, who is destined to sin because of his free will, is being endowed with this incredible gift of free will, thus being made in the image of God, God has to employ this new name, so to speak, the yud heh vav and heh which is Rachamim, because it's only through God's Rachamim that human beings will be able to fall and return again and again and again, and develop and even strengthen the relationship and connection with God through this inevitable falling and coming back. It's all part of the same thing. It's not failure. It's called spiritual growth. It's called the human condition. It's called the struggle, which Hashem favors and loves, something that the angels don't have to do, but because of it, human beings are higher than the angels because the struggle is beloved to God. And to become dejected or despair when one falls is simply the voice of the Yetzir Hara that says, give it up. How many times are you going to fail? How many times are you going to disappoint? Just give it up, right? So that's one of the voices of the Yetzirah that we know we have to never listen to because that's the nature of man is to fall and come back. And that's why the first name of God in Shema Yisrael is this name of Rachami, Hashem. But the next name is Elokeinu, our God. Now here we see we're saying our God, this is a personal God. He's our God. Again, like Rashi said, right now, At this stage of history, he's the Jewish God. But one day he will be the God of all mankind as he was at the beginning of creation. Right? And 
We're saying that this God of mercy and this God of judgment, Elokeinu, Elokim, is the same one. Hashem Echad. We say the name Rachamim again, right? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem. Again, we put the God of Rachamim first again. Echad, that he's one God. Now, what do we do when we say this sentence? We cover our eyes. Why do we do that? So obviously one reason is when our eyes are covered, we can concentrate better, right? That's why men will pull their talus up over their head to kind of make themselves this more isolated feeling so they can concentrate. So one reason obviously is, is for concentration. But the other reason is, is because it's very difficult for us to imagine this oneness with our eyes open. Because we live in a world of duality. We live in a world of good and evil where it's all mixed up together. We live in a world of light and dark. Everywhere we look, everything we see up and down, right? East and West, whatever you like, there's a sense of duality. So with our physical human eyes, it doesn't look like things are one. We have to cover our eyes and go inward to a place where we can understand that it's all one. And the way that it's described, <clears throat> and, and this is difficult, again, it's a difficult concept for man because of our limitedness, our physicality, body and soul, duality again, right? Yetzirhara, Yetzirtov, duality. And we have to know, though, that all of these manifestations are all manifestations of God that come from one source. You know, there's, it seems contradictory, the fact that God is strict and merciful at the same time. So we have difficulty with the harmony of seeing contradictions. And the best example that the rabbis give is the idea of a ray of light, that from a ray of light seen through a prism, many, many colors emerge. So the source is one light, but with a prism, you can see how many colors emerge from that one light. <clears throat> and of course, one of the age-old questions that human beings have struggled with in this idea of God's oneness is how can it be that a good God allows evil and bad to happen? Why do the righteous suffer? You know, there was one famous rabbi, if you like, who wrote a book, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? And his conclusion was that God can't control evil which is obviously a aberrant type of philosophy that traditional Judaism cannot accept because if God is all powerful, there's no such thing as God not being able to control anything. Rather, God allows evil. He allows us to make our choices. He allows human beings to be as evil or as good as they want to be. He steps back, if you like. He makes space. And 
But it's easy, I mean, to arrive at this conclusion, right? That there's two forces, one good and one evil. That's what Christianity is based on, right? The fallen angel, the Satan that God is in struggle with. Not an not a Jewish idea as we're going to understand more. So again, we cover our eyes while we're saying the Shema because what appears to our limited sight seems to contradict the unity of God. So I've told over this story before, but I think it's worth telling again. It's a story that comes from a medrash. And it's actually in this children's book that I used to read to my kids called Our Sages Showed the Way. And it's a story about Eliyahu Anabi and this Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi who meets Eliyahu Anabi and he asks him, why do the, riches, why do the righteous people suffer? And Elio Anavi says to him, you know, I, I'm not going to answer that question, but if you like, you can accompany me today and see what I do, but you're not allowed to ask any questions, okay? So just to quickly tell you the story, I'd love to read it to you because it's written so beautifully, but um, just to quickly tell you the story, and I think I've told it in other classes, but it's always worth repeating. So, so Rabbi Yoshua accompanies Elio Anavi on his, um, on his way, on his journey. And he says, you know, I want to learn. I've tried really hard to understand why do righteous people sometimes suffer and wicked people prosper. And Eliyahu says to him, if you go with me, you'll see many things that are going to anger and trouble you. And if you question me, then you won't be allowed to come with me further. For I go on Hashem's missions, and you can't bother me with your doubts. So basically, they come to the first place they come is a broken down old wooden cabin. A cow is chewing on grass nearby. There's an old man and his wife sitting on a simple bench, resting from their day's labors. And they come up to them, and this couple greets them warmly. And they say, you know, we're very poor people. Our house is simple and small, but we would love you to be our guests. Please don't refuse. Stay with us. It's going to be dark soon. The city's far away. And Elio Navi and Rabbi Yoshub and Levi follow him. They sit him, them down. They offer them bread and a little bit of milk and cheese. <clears throat> we wish we had more to give you, they said, but this is all we have. They offer them bags of straw to sleep on while they... <clears throat> The old man and his wife sleep on the hard, cold floor. In the morning before they leave, Rabbi Yeshua and Eliyahu were davening their morning prayers when Rabbi Yeshua hears Eliyahu asking that the poor man's cow die. And he realizes that not too long after they leave, his prayer has been answered because he hears the woman crying out, Oh, our cow, our cow. Woe unto us. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi's heart is filled with anger and anguish. This is the reward these good people deserve when they had welcomed them so kindly and given them all they had to offer. He opens his mouth to ask Eliyahu why he had repaid kind deeds with evil. But Eliyahu raises his finger in warning and says, remember, not a single question. Otherwise, we will part and you will learn nothing. 
So Rabbi Yehoshua is silent. They continue. Towards evening, they reach the home of a wealthy man. They knock on the door, but no one opens it. Maybe they didn't hear us, said Eliyahu. Let's see if anyone is home. They go and look through the window. They see a wealthy man sitting in front of all kinds of delicacies. Men servants and maid servants are at the beck of his call. The wealthy man sees the guests and does not welcome them in. He doesn't invite them to share the, in his feast. He says, who are these bothersome beggars? We must make sure the door is locked at all times. Why don't these lazy people go to work instead of coming to beg? He was, uh, he was extremely stingy and mean-hearted, but he had another reason for being bad-tempered because one of the walls of his house had collapsed. And he had called the workmen to come and rebuild the, the wall, but they were too busy and didn't come. Anyway, basically, uh, the guests are allowed to sleep outside. They're not given anything to eat or drink. <clears throat> and when dawn breaks and they begin their morning prayers, Elio Anavi asked Hashem to pour, perform a miracle and restore the wrecked wall in the home of the wealthy man immediately. And indeed, before their very eyes, the wall rose the wall rose and was as whole and perfect as though it had never collapsed. What a lovely surprise for this wicked, wicked homeowner, Rabbi Yehoshua thought bitterly. Why does he deserve to have this miracle performed to him? But he knew that he had promised not to ask. And so he controlled himself, kept quiet. They continued. They went to the third place. It was a shul, a beautiful shul, a luxurious shul. They said, maybe one of the congregants will invite us home. The people of the city were very wealthy, very proud of their riches. And each of them sat in their place and didn't want any strangers to come in and dare sit in their shul, in their, in their place where they always sit. They said, look at these poor people. They've come again here. Who's going to feed them this time? Well, you know what? We don't have to invite them home. Let's just bring them a little bit of bread and uh, water. They could sleep in the shul. Anyway, when they leave this place, Elio and Avi Dovins, at the people of the city, he says, may it be Hashem's will that you will all be leaders and important people. Rabbi Yehoshua is very annoyed. How could such arrogant people who couldn't even be bothered to help these poor strangers deserve such a blessing? But he keeps quiet. Anyway, just to speed the story up a little bit, the last place they go is a much poorer place, a place where um, people don't have much, but they're welcomed into the city and they're given a spacious, comfortable home and the best of food and drink. And in the morning, Eliyahu prays that Hashem, it should be Hashem's will that he grants you only one leader. Anyway, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi can't contain himself anymore. He says, I can't understand what you've done. I want to know what is going on here. Why is it that all the nasty people were given such brachas and the wonderful people that we met along the way were given terrible things that happened to them? So Eliyahu explains to him, number one, the cow that dies. I knew it had been decreed that the wife of the poor man who hosted us our first night would die the next day. So I prayed to Hashem that she live and that God take the cow instead. True, it was a great sorrow for them. But wouldn't the man gladly have given up everything? 
So that is to save his wife. They'll, they're both going to be blessed with an easier and more comfortable life, and they will no longer be upset about the cow. As far as the wealthy miser is concerned, he didn't know that underneath his wrecked wall was a large treasure of gold that had been hidden there. If he had repaired the wall, he would have found the treasure. Now that a miracle was performed and the wall was rebuilt by itself, he will never find it. Not only that, the wall will fall down again, but this time it won't even be rebuilt because he'll be so busy with other worries, he won't even be able to think about repairing his house. In the third place where they didn't treat us well in the shul and the town, I prayed that all those arrogant people in the synagogue would all become leaders so that they will quarrel among themselves for no one will want to listen to anyone else. Each one will want to be the head. There won't be any harmony or peace among them, nor will any of their activities be blessed. And finally, in the last place, the place where the people received us kindly, I ask that they have only one chief. May they all agree to select the best man and live together in peace and happiness under his leadership. And now you must realize that the ways of Hashem are hidden. Not everything that seems good to you is truly good. And not everything that seems bad to you is truly bad. And this is the idea of Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, the contradictory nature of God, that on the one hand, God is the God of compassion, and on the other hand, God is the God of strict justice. And that we have to realize that everything comes from this God, the good and the bad. There's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. As I've said in many classes, there's no leaf that falls from a tree without God's supervision and guidance, let alone our lives and how things happen and unfold and when things happen, at what moment, all orchestrated perfectly so that we can reach our soul's divine mission in this world and do what we need to do. And only we can only do this if we continue to recognize that we're on this journey and that relationship with God is the way that we're able to achieve our unique life's mission. Talmud actually says that a person is supposed to thank God equally for the good and the bad. Now, this is a very high level, but there's an idea of being that even when suffering comes upon you and difficult things, you are them with ahaba, with love, that God, that you know that God is doing this out of love, that he's a loving God. Just like the parent that sometimes has to give a patch or send you to your room or deny you certain privileges. And we would say that a parent who doesn't do these things is a not loving parent, right? Because this parent wants you to become the best person that you can be, to discipline you, to correct while you're young, some of those flaws, to guide you and lead you in the way that you should go. This is 
what the idea of God and thanking God for the good and the bad is all about. Of course, we know and God understands that we can't do that, which is why when something good happens, we say, Baruch Hashem Tovu Meiti, the one who is good and does good. But when God forbid we hear tragedy or some, that somebody has died, we might intellectually say everything God does is good, but we don't say Baruch Hashem Tovu Meiti. We say Baruch Dayan HaEmes. Blessed is the true judge because it's beyond our comprehension. Just like in the story of Eliyahu Navi and Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, but we know that it all emanates from the same source of goodness. But we cannot say it, and that God understands that all we can say is bow our head and say, Baruch Dayan HaEmes. Okay, just quickly to finish up. So judgment and punishment are expression of his oneness even as he's also merciful. Okay, in the, in the, in the verse, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, in the Torah, the ayin of Shema is written large and the dalit of Echad is written large. Those two letters, if you read them together, spell the word aid, which means that every time a Jewish person says these words, Shema Yisrael, he's a witness. He's witnessing, so to speak. He's offering testimony that there is only one God. And Rabbi Schwab says that the ayin in Shema is actually an allusion to the idea of the I, that the Jews are saying, we were there at Mount Sinai. We, so to speak, saw God, right? We were there when the, ten when the Torah was revealed and we're witnessing, we're, we're, we're giving testimony to that truth so that's one reason for the enlarged ayin and dalit okay another reason that the ayin is enlarged is because of the fear that the shema could be replaced with the word aleph because and shema with an aleph means perhaps or maybe maybe god is one so the idea that there's no doubt that god is one is why we have an ayin and large and the echad the dalit is enlarged because we shouldn't mistake it with the letter resh which is very similar to the dalit because then it would reach in other words there's other there's another god other than god right there's a god if you like of, of the good there's the god of the bad there's the god of the storms there's a god of the water there's a god right there's other gods. So we make the Dalit very large because of that. Now, when we say the word Echad at the end, we're supposed to draw out that Dalit. We say, if you're in shul and you hear the men say it, they say Echad. And they really pronounce it strongly that it sounds like a Dalit and not like anything else. Again, to make that word a testimony and that it's not a Resh, it's a Dalit, okay? Now, also, it's because the Dalit represents that Hashem is master of all four directions, north, south, east, and west. And 
Also, the word echad, by the way, is alluding to the concept of God being master over everything. So the aleph of the word echad is the idea of one God. The chet, which equals the number eight, are the seven heavens. Right, we say, you know, seventh heaven, it comes from Judaism, right? What do you say when you're really happy? You say, I was in seventh heaven, right? So seven heavens, and then God sits on the top of those heavens, but there's actually the, the chet is the seven heavens and earth, the, the heavens and the earth being connected. And just like I said, the Dalit refers to the four directions, north, south, east, and west. So when you say the word echad, you should be concentrating on God is one, that God is the God of seven heavens and earth, the number eight, right? And that he's in all four directions. Also, the letters of the Shema, Shin, Mem, Ayin, if you put them backwards, they spell, they stand for the words, Ol Malchus Shamayim. Because when a person is saying, they should be thinking in their mind of accepting the yoke, we're going to talk about that word, of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Hashem, I am giving up my free will at this moment and making myself totally subservient to you, right? And I'm accepting this mission, this yoke, right? Um, upon myself. And the word Shema again stand for Ol Malchushamayim, accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. And this is not something we do voluntarily or out of convenience, but it's mandatory. We can't free ourselves of it. Like a yoke on an animal, he can't get rid of it, you know? And that yoke is meant to direct him, it's meant to make him go in the way that he's supposed to go. So just a couple stories before we end, because there's so much to talk about. And that is that I want to tell you a story about a rabbi, Eliezer Silver. Maybe you heard of it, heard of him. And the depth to which this prayer, the Shema Yisrael goes. So Rabbi Eliezer Silver was a chaplain. Find the exact story. And... um, 1945, he was a chaplain in the U.S. Army. He went to Europe after the war, searching for Jewish children in orphanages and convents. Everywhere he went, he was told that there's no Jewish children here. Um, Their last names could be Polish or German. Anyway, he asked permission if he could walk through the rows of beds in the evening time. He would come back to these orphanages in these Christian places and what he would do is as he was walking through the beds of children he would call out Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad and children all over the room quietly under their breath would say Baruch Shem Kavod and he walked through that room saying that's a Jewish child, that's a Jewish child, that's a Jewish child. 
And he walked out of convent and orphanage one after the other with Jewish children behind him. Because this Shema prayer had been embedded in them from the time that they could speak, from the time even before, from their parents who they had lost in the war, in the Holocaust, saying these words to them every night before they went to sleep. And so this rabbi knew that this was the way he would be able to find and identify which children were Jewish among the non-Jews. Okay, I'm going to end here. There's so much to say, so many stories. I hope you'll continue to join me. Anybody has any questions, please, you can ask them now.